I like when he calls the positivists methodolatrists. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> like that, if, if, you, if you said that at a conference today, people would just look at you like, what the fuck? Hey yo, what is going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who study philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And how long do I get to use the I was sick and I'm recovering from surgery as an excuse for just anything and everything or to elicit sympathy or anything? How long do I have? I think it's uh, in proportion to how much of your body they had to cut open. <laughs> well, so it, unf- you get quite a bit of leeway there. Well, but quantitatively, you know, medical science is so advanced now that they do keyhole surgeries for really crazy, qualitatively difficult procedures. So how does that work? So th- as technology increases in specificity and complexity, you get less sympathy. That's just the rules. Oh, sh- gosh dang it. I wish I would have had this surgery 10 years ago. They would have <laughs> cut me open. I'd had a huge scar up my side or chest or whatever. I can't remember. It was, it was one of my friends, actually. Um, she wanted to like see me after the surgery or whatever, and I didn't have a shirt on. And um, she said she was expecting me. Like, you know, like, I don't know if they still are, because I know you can do keyhole cardiac surgeries as well, but. Like she was expecting like the heart surgery kind of scar, like right down the middle of my chest where they would just like ripped my chest cavity open. And I was like, no, I'm really glad that isn't what I have. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's kind of awesome. But at the same time, the recovery would have been like three times as long or would be. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, well, cool. Well, welcome people. Um, Today we're going to talk about empiricism and the, or I should say maybe not empiricism because that might be part I'm front-loading it too much, but the empirical, the adjective empirical, and it's based on this short little article by Jacob, and we haven't figured out how to say his last name, but Lowenberg, Lovenberg, Lovenberg, what do you think? Yeah, Lowenberg sounds good to me. That's the way American would pronounce it, at least. That's right. Um, And yeah, he basically, uh, it's a short little pithy article that he wrote that I believe you can access if you want online. It's... um, uh, Oh, God. Hold on one second. Let me get what it's called. I think it's just called What is the Empirical, right? Yeah, What yeah. is Empirical. Yeah, the article is called What is Empirical uh, by Lowenberg, and it's L-O-E-W-E-N-B-E-R-G. And so you can find that if you want, and it's literally nine pages, and it's really accessible, very readable. So we are going to be talking about that in the main segment. Um, but first, just want to give a quick reminder that if you find value in what we're producing and if you want access to bonus content, including our most recent episode, which is live now, where we talk about my ketamine experience in the hospital and then about kind of the experience of, I don't know, dealing with or looking at or thinking about your mortality or your human fragility or whatever else. We talked about that for about an hour and you can access that episode as well as all the other back catalog of bonus content, as well as get access to the newsletter. Um, Get involved in our Democracy Motherfuckers Club, which is when you can recommend topics for future episodes. And we also want to say that it looks like the poll is closed for the last uh, Democracy Motherfuckers episode selection, and the philosophy of psychoanalysis went out. So I'm trying to get a guest on for that, and if we can secure that, then we'll be doing that next episode 
Um, otherwise, in the next couple weeks, we will be addressing the philosophy of psychoanalysis. I'm not exactly sure, but just to give you guys a heads up. But go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. That's patreon.com slash owls at dawn. It really helps us out so that we can produce quality content, and it'll make it better for you guys. Better viewer experience. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to bring in a ringer for this uh, <laughs> democracy episode. Me too. We've also mentioned before that um, if you give us a five-star rating and a review on any of the major platforms and you ask a question in your review, we'll address it for a couple of minutes briefly on one of the forthcoming episodes after you leave the review. So we got to do that now. We have an, a review from He Jebated, which is a great name, um, <laughs> on Apple Podcasts. And Jebated asks, um, I would like to hear your opinions on gun law reform and the structure of the current system. So I don't know about how you feel exactly about this, Austin. I feel like we've talked about this before, but um, there's, for me, at least not too much debate when it comes to uh, the policy issues involved. I mean, um, there's not a lot of good faith debate that happens in this country regarding gun law reform <laughs> and the public no. sphere, at least. So it seems like um, we're the only country that has this as this degree of a problem. Um, yeah. Uh, as far as gun violence on oneself in terms of suicide and on others. And all other countries have much better laws than we do. And it'd be pretty easy to just look at them and empirically, here's a little foreshadowing for the future of this episode, empirically uh, come up with <laughs> better solutions for uh, resolving this problem. But that's not really super interesting to me since I think most people who have a good faith view on these things don't necessarily agree entirely on exactly which kind of reform is necessary, but the idea that some kind of reform is necessary. Um, I think you might have a, a more interesting take when it comes to the issues that underlie just the pure policy issues regarding gun mm, reform. I, yeah. I, I mean, I think so. Cause I, I agree. Not only is it not a good faith debate that's had in the public, but I, I kind of almost find it, do I find it kind of boring I, I just think that it's oftentimes taking place at a level that, that isn't ultimately productive, I think I would say. And so I'd want to move the conversation to what I think is a more productive and challenging level of discourse. I will say real quick, though, before I say that, if you want to look at how effective policy is in mitigating um, gun harm, look at the country where I currently live yeah, you're in Australia. Now. Right? I mean, uh, vast sweeping gun reform laws, and um, there are hardly gun crimes now. Not that there are none, of course, there are some people, but I mean, we're talking about exponentially fewer than anything that happens in the United States. So policy does have a tremendous effect if you just will implement it. Um, but I think the level that I find more interesting to think about is like, like what, there's like a psychoanalytic desire to maintain, it's kind of like a phallic extension of this thing that is a gun that is a masculine power this thing where i think people oftentimes fear that um it is a method or a a device of enjoyment that that somehow progressives are opposed to because progressives are viewed as the party that are contra enjoyment whereas the conservatives are the ones who enjoy right they enjoy with their freedom they enjoy with their guns they enjoy with their oil they enjoy with their big cars they enjoy with their skyscrapers they enjoy with their money and the boats that's the idea is that they're supposedly the party of enjoyment and that that there's this perpetual fear of that enjoyment being attacked or taken away from them um but that's why they can rally behind somebody like a trump because trump is viewed as like the sort of 
vicarious person through whom they can enjoy at all costs. That's why it doesn't matter if, you know, you're a conservative Christian and this guy's like someone to loathe morally. It doesn't matter because you can still find your enjoyment through him and it doesn't threaten anything that it, that could potentially like castrate you. Whereas gun laws are viewed as being completely contrary to that. And that's why, you know, somebody like uh, pretty much any Republican candidate, not to mention the gun lobby that's behind them and all those other things, but they're going to support that same kind of process of enjoyment because they're going to be the ones who aren't going to castrate. They're going to kind of like exist under this myth, this banner of quote unquote freedom, which I think really is some kind of weird sort of like fear of castration. And you know what? As much as um, it's obvious that that kind of freedom is a false freedom um, and it's pathological, they're not wrong that the kind of mainstream liberal um, views on this issue and on just in general, really, are contra enjoyment. <laughs> that's hmm. not entirely wrong. Um, that's a like a halfway uh, successful diagnosis. And so um, there's a little bit of um, as much as you can rail on uh, the conservative side of this issue as being kind of like a death drive. Um, and that's not entirely wrong either. It, it, it doesn't mean that the liberal side of um, the general like cultural war that um, is bigger than just the gun issue is uh, absolutely outside of the realm of like psychoanalytic critique, right? Yeah, I almost wonder. I've heard Todd McGowan and Ryan Angley, I think is his name, um, on Why Theory. They've talked about this, and when he said it, it was like light bulb. He said this a few months ago light bulb went off in my head where he said that, you know, like the right is the party of enjoyment and that the left is the party of austerity. And I don't mean economic austerity, but I just mean being austere and kind of like self-flagellating and morose and mortifying sin. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so true, which isn't the way that I think I normally would have thought about it because I, I grew up in the kind of puritanical, not grew up, but I was heavily exposed to the puritanical reformed Christian world, which is very much like mortification of sin. There's law and grace, and you're constantly holding yourself up against the light of perfection, which is supposed to remind you how horrible you are, right? But nevertheless, there's still a kind of perverse enjoyment in that as well. We could get into that another time. But but um, so I kind of just didn't think of the conservative position as being the party of enjoyment. I always thought of it as the party of castration and restriction. But that's not necessarily true, is it? And that really, especially in the culture war now uh, that we're seeing um, with this just rampant policing, self-policing, internalization of that kind of policing, what you get is that the kind of center-left liberal, progressive liberal, rad liberal, like the rad liberal liberal is very much an anti-enjoyment, let's say, position, political, social position. And that's not kind of what I would have thought. And if you want any proof of this, just look at the number one weapon that liberals tend to use against anything that a popular conservative um, politician or figure uh, when they present themselves um, as such, the number one weapon is shame, right? Trying mm. to shame them. And what That's seems right. to be happening lately is that it just doesn't work, right? You try and shame them and sort of other liberals gather around you and agree with the shame and they may point as well. But then um, shamelessness is the new response, right? That's so interesting. Yeah, they're trying to shame to induce a guilt. And if guilt is tied to debt, then that means that there's some sort of transcendent standard that they're erecting, right? Some sort of law, some new law, like almost let's say a metaphysical deity even, a big other, that they want uh, the person that is the, the kind of like target of their ire to be submitted to. That's super interesting. Yes, that's um, gun reform. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> gun reform. 
Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But seriously, man. But here's I okay. Wait, real you, quick. You, want some, you want some good gun reform law? Bring down the big other. Bring down the big other. Absolutely. Okay. I I have a question though. Speaking of the big other, I grew up with like my dad has guns, and I grew up shooting, and I grew up like idolizing like you know cowboy and Indian quote unquote type of stuff, right? And I used to dress up like cowboy, and so I and I grew up in Southern California, quite conservative. So for me guns per se weren't bad um and i used to go shooting when i turned 18 i went to the range all the time with my buddies and well shit we used to fuck you know how cowboy i am we used to go to the gun range but then we also used to go to this horse range where you could just rent horses it was kind of shady because they would have no guide and you could just like ride horses for an hour at night so we would go and smoke (laughs) weed and ride horses and just run through the fields. It was fucking awesome. On the same day, so we'd go like shoot at the gun range and then we would go ride horses. We thought we were cowboys. But so I have something <laughs> in me. I have something in me that's still partial to the kind of like cowboy western thing, like shooting guns. Do you think that there's something just inherently wrong and that if policy were to change, I would just need to give up all of that that whatever it is, that that appeal, that that fantasy that I have. That's that's a huge question. I don't know. <laughs> Um, I mean, certainly with, with any fantasy, there's something that you can sort of, um, can sort of break down and, and see an element in it that may be, uh, wrong or I don't know, problematic in some sense. Um, yeah. but I don't think that that means that I, you should, we shouldn't fall under like the kind of, um, you know, centrist liberal, like shaming technique where the very idea of having a fantasy makes you like childish or whatever. Everyone has that shit, right? Mm. Um, so there's got to be some sense in which we allow the sort of the, the fantastical element um, and our identity to survive, but then be able to critique it and um, stand in some sense, at least temporarily, uh, in an objective relation to it um, so that it doesn't just guide us down a path that's clearly towards destruction, which sometimes fantasies do, right? Mm. Yeah. That's true. Maybe I can like sublimate that libidinal energy into academic and artistic output. Are are you saying that um, to get a gun instead of like getting a license or having to take uh, like training um, sessions or anything like that, you just have to read Lacan? Is that what you want? (laughs) Yeah. And I have to watch hours and hours and hours of YouTube videos on it. That's like my (laughs) my new training. Yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's that's some progressive what? policy I can get behind. <laughs> Mandated psychoanalysis for the people. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Okay, so before we get into our main segment talking about this article on the empirical, we gotta do the first thing that we do in this show, which is the shitty minute. Shitty minute is the part of the show where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So Austin, what's got you down? Brother, I, I I didn't even say anything to you because I wanted this to just be, I don't know if I want to say a surprise, but I wanted this to be novel when I talked about it. So reference my sticky leaves from last week. I was mm-hmm. talking about how I love, you know, my new tattoo and the experience with my tattoo artist was so fantastic. Well, my shitty minute this week is I have a small minor infection on a part <laughs> On a part of my tattoo. Here comes the negation. <laughs> and I'm so bummed out. And partly I'm bummed out 
because there's a potential in, and it's not even that much. It's like really, really minor, but there's a potential that it'll make the color fade, but that's fine. Cause you know, my tattoo artist will, um, do, uh, uh, touch-ups but that's not really what I'm bummed about you want to know what I'm really bummed about it's the reason that I got the infection and I'm pretty sure I mean you can never know for certain but I'm pretty sure so I have other tattoos right and I've never had an infection before now granted I am recovering from surgery so there's there's a possibility that my immune system is weaker and there I even talked to my surgeons about this I said is it too quick to rush in to get a tattoo and my surgeon kind of chuckled and he said he's never gotten that question before whatever <laughs> And, uh, and I was like, well, I, I just want to make sure I'm not rushing into it. Cause I know that, you know, going for like a, a long session, it's taxing on your body and blah, 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 blah. But anyway, I think the real reason for it is that I decided this time to do something that I had not done before. Whereas before I used all the kind of standard aftercare tattoo stuff that they tell, like, you know, particular types of ointment for the first couple days. And then you, once it all heals up, then you switch to, uh, various kinds of lotion, Aquaphor, Cetaphil, whatever. But I decided that I was going to go all natural and I decided that I was going to use argan oil and I read online, (laughs) I read online a lot about it and argan oil has antibacterial and antifungal and antimicrobial properties as well as boatloads of vitamin A and E and D and all these other things. However, what I think the issue was was that argan oil also can maintain moisture in your skin, which is simultaneously where bacteria likes to hide. And the weather has gotten warm here, which means we have a perfect storm for it being warm. My argan oil, which holds in some moisture, and the open wound. And so I believe that was the cause of the infection. And so I just want to say to everybody out there, if you're going to get a tattoo... Um, from my experience, I would say don't use argan oil. Just do, do what the, the stuff. doctor fucking tells you. <laughs> do what the doctor fucking tells you. And don't try to stick to your principles and think that you were going to beat the system. And I'll be honest, it was healing the first couple of days, like, so amazingly. And I was about to tweet out that, like, argan oil is the shit. And then I was like, oh, but I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to wait a little bit. And I read on the ultimate sin pe- of the influencer, man. I know, dude. And I was going to wait online and I was, or, I mean, I read online and I was going to, um, and, I, and I read a bunch of stuff about it that like, you know, that, that other people had good experience with it, but everybody's skin is different. Everybody's experience is different. Everyone's situation is different. And considering all my other tattoos that I've gotten and considering that I've never had an issue before um, and considering that I did everything else in my aftercare perfectly well and that this is a really reputable studio, a reputable artist, um, I'm assuming that, I mean, it could have been something weird and freakish that happened, you know, with some other kind of contamination, but I don't think so. I am pretty sure it was my own fault. So I'm mad at myself because I decided to go hippie. Man, so what's the what's the ultimate, like, philosophical lesson we learned from this? Um, Trust authority blindly? There's a time and a place for everything, right? <laughs> When you become worse Italian all of a sudden? That's it, man. That's it. So skincare for your face, argan oil is fantastic as a daily moisturizer. However, if you have an an open wound, um, I would just say stick with the chemical shit. (laughs) (laughs) Stick with the pharmaceuticals, man. (laughs) Uh, 
Yeah, I don't even know how to respond to this. What were you what were you thinking I was going to respond with? I thought you were just going to laugh at me because you were going to say that's <laughs> that's ironic with how it, it, much I like. Yeah. Yeah, it is kind of like a sitcom plot point. It's totally a sitcom plot point. <laughs> but yeah. like not even a good sitcom, like like um Two and a Half Men. What's the one with Kevin James? Oh, King of Queens. Yeah, like that. Or Two and a Half Men. Yeah, that's pretty good too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know. So that's my shitty minute. Uh, I'm just mad at myself for trying to think that I knew better than the entire last, you know, four decades of tattoo knowledge. But the thing is, like I said, there are there are like natural websites where they're like, you know, vegan, all natural kind of people who are covered with tattoos and they talk about how they've used argan oil. So that's what I, when I first read it, I was kind of like, hmm, I'm already a big fan of argan oil. I'm going to try it, but I'm pretty much going to guarantee that the next tattoo that I get, I will not be doing the same thing. Yeah. Anecdotal data, right? Yep. 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 So, yep. Now I've got to be on a little course of uh, antibiotics and a little bit of anti uh, antibiotic topical cream just to make it go away in a couple of days. So that's That's not going to cause any problems for your recovery, is it? For my lungs? Yeah. No, no, no. I can be on antibiotics. I was on antibiotics when I was in the hospital, so that's fine. Okay, cool. So, yeah, yeah. No, I'm good. good yeah, good, so good. everybody out there, even if we ever uh, rail on the scientific method and the attainment <laughs> of absolute knowledge through it, uh, doesn't mean that you should not take your medicine. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, take your medicine. <laughs> Inductive knowledge is knowledge, man. It is indeed. All right, so should we jump, jump into this article? Yeah, let's jump into the article, man. So as you were saying, um, uh, Jacob Lohenberg wrote this in, I think, 1940, article, What is Empirical? And it's in the Journal of Philosophy, which is wonderful, because that's one of the most prestigious journals in um, Anglo-American philosophy in the 20th century. And uh, I want to get a little bit from you about why you chose this in the first place, because I don't know much of the history behind it or or how you became aware of it. But I hadn't heard of this article or even of Lohenberg at all. And um, it's amazing that this was published in the Journal of Philosophy hmm. because it would never get published today. Um, it, it's basically a blog post. It doesn't really have a clear like thesis. Um, it's kind of ranty. It's got some polemical stuff in it that seems kind of inappropriate for like a you know prestigious journal today. Um, I like when he calls the positivists methodolatrists. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> like that, and then if, if you if you said that at a conference today, people would just look at you like, what the fuck? I know. And then and then on they have an ontophobia. <laughs> yeah, that was almost like continental ease right there. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed that aspect of it because as much as I don't think um this is how philosophy should always be done, obviously, there's absolutely a place. Um, for this kind of thing. And the fact that this is, would be considered unprofessional or um, just a rant today, I think is uh, kind of a blight on how prestigious academic philosophy in America is done today. But uh, that said, how did you become aware of this and what were you interested in about it? Yeah. So real quick, I do want to say too, it might be worth noting that at this point, Lowenberg was the chair of philosophy at Berkeley. So it's not like he was a fringe philosopher either. He was a very, you know, in a prestigious position and in a very high place. And uh, 
So it's not like he was an up and comer. He was what? What did we say? He was probably sixty something when he writes. Early sixties, al- yeah. almost sixty. Yeah, something like that. So, um, yeah. Well, that's a, that but, says a lot, right? I mean, the only way you can get away with writing something like this is if you already have enough power to where no one can really critique you. Yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah, um, you know, it was so random um, because you know, obviously, I've kind of maybe not entirely transitioned, but I'm doing a lot more work in the social sciences now. So the concerns in the social sciences are oftentimes about your approach or your methodological approach to what you're doing. Is it quantitative analysis? What kind of quantitative analysis? So there's a lot of debate about the prominence of quant analysis in social sciences to the neglect of qualitative analysis. Now you get kind of maybe more progressive lefty types that are like, hey, quant lovers, let's not forget about the qualitative analysis stuff, right? And so there was a random, and this is months ago now, and I only remember this vaguely, but there was a random Twitter discussion, and it's someone that I follow, and I I don't even remember who it was, um, who was talking about this issue in these debates and was talking about empiricism. And I think I Googled, it was like a recommendation of another article that that he was talking about. So I Googled that, and for some reason, this just happened to be on the first page of Google search. And I clicked on it because it just said, what is empirical? And I just clicked on it and just randomly, I, I don't even remember if I, if there was like, a, um, oh God, what's the word I'm looking for? The short little thing that tells you what it is before the essay. Abstract? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, I don't even remember if there was an abstract. Um, I think I may have just read it and I started reading it and that was it. And I thought it was very uh, fascinating. It, it fits a lot into my research on Sartre, who is very critical of what he calls analytical reason in favor of developing uh, dialectical reason. And he's even critical of supposed dialectical thinkers, Marxists, particularly positivist Marxists, but also uh, like uh, Engelsian Marxists and those who erect um, a dialectics of nature because he thinks that they actually ultimately just kind of fall into this trap of analytical reason. And so I've been really curious about what is empiricism, what are empirical approaches, what are analytical approaches. They fit into what Paul Livingston refers to as a constructivist or criteriological orientation. And so I've been trying to kind of like fit in how I can work through uh, and critically engage with empirical methodologies and orientations in a way that would fit into sort of my reading of Sartre um, um, and and his criticism of analytical reason. So I'm reading this, uh, and then um, I also got reminded a lot of Deleuze in this, because one of the things that Lowenberg talks about is making this distinction between methodological empiricism and methodological rationalism. And methodological empiricism, spoiler, we'll unpack this in a minute, but has to do with like at least an assumption or a basis or an occasion of immediacy that undergirds it, right? Whereas methodological rationalism is discursive or transcendental or relational, or we might say has, um, it, it focuses on or it emphasizes the immediate. Well, what Deleuze wants to do with his transcendental empiricism is bridge the two together, which Lowenberg says, you know, that they are kind of like necessarily distinct. You know, they are correlatives. Um, but I think that there's some really interesting stuff in here that he talks about that gives me nice ammunition for thinking through how I can work through Deleuze's transcendental empiricism, tie that into sort of my work on Sartre's dialectical reason and his critique of analytical reason, and then that criteriological orientation thing that I was talking about with Paul Livingston as as I'm kind of like working through criticisms of particular quantitative empirical approaches within political economy. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. And I, I okay, was cool. thinking at some point I wanted to bring up the question of in what sense is the Lisbon empiricist given the transcendental empiricism moniker. But let's, let's wait until closer to the end to get to that because I think it'll this will be fruitful to go through the article first cool. before asking that question. So you mentioned the idea of the correlative, right? Yeah. So the kind of guiding idea here in this article, if there is one, is this idea of the fallacy of the suppressed correlative. And what Lohenberg means by that is basically you can't have an important philosophical term um, without having its correlative, right? So in some sense, it's opposite. And if you, in analyzing your kind of chosen term, end up reducing the correlative term to the original term or dismissing it altogether, then you've in essence not really done anything that's helpful or um, Mm. in, in any way contributes towards knowledge. And so I think he has in mind here and he mentions even later very explicitly the logical positivists of the early 20th century as being people who wanted to basically define knowledge as entirely empirical in some sense, kind of following like the Humean tradition of, of moving the sort of rationally based knowledge to basically just tautologies and things like that. And so he thinks at that point, um, empiricism doesn't really mean that much. So he wants to sort of bring both empiricism and rationalism, or he also calls it just the non-empirical, as correlatives so that in having sort of um, these combative terms, or you might say antagonistic terms, you can actually bring both of them to their fullest like um, potential in some sense. Yeah, you can tell that he was an idea, or that he was a Hegelian, right? He comes out of the British... Um, the British idealist tradition, and so that there's some sort of like he wants to maintain that duality, right? That productive duality, because if you just simply reduce everything to like the singular, um, then what you end up doing is you kind of repress. And I think I think that he would even say this. I mean, maybe not in psychoanalytic terms, but you sort of like repress, if you will, uh, certain metaphysical presuppositions. So he talks about Samuel Alexander as well, who was another um, German, or not German, he was another um, a British idealist uh, yeah. that was a Hegel scholar. And one of the things that Alexander... Kind of crazy interesting one. <laughs> I mean, I, I only... I, first time I heard of him was actually from this article. So, um, But I, I'm curious, actually, after some of the stuff that he says, or at least that Lowenberg reports that he says, to kind of read him further. But, but one of the things that he says that Alexander says that there's really only the only difference between like philosophers and science is the the subject matter, um, but that actually in their methodological approach they're both you know experientialists or empiricists um, that they both have an experiential approach. It's just the only difference really is the subject matter. One is I guess dealing with concepts and the other is dealing with you know material data. Um, I guess we might say. But the problem is is that that kind of that that squashes all distinctions. So if everything is just simply experiential, if everything is ultimately just empirical, then that doesn't allow for the existence of some sort of negation of the empirical, the non-empirical. And Lowenberg thinks that that's problematic because it represses or suppresses, if you will, that correlative. And so he wants to really kind of work through a productive tension of having uh, the maintenance of the kind of correlative terms. You know what's awesome, dude? Hmm. Uh, you know what I want to do is, you know how like the new thing in um, fiction just to do like historical revisionism. Yeah. Like, Man in the high castles. What if the Nazis won yeah. and stuff like that. Um, and then like Tarantino's all this shit too. Yeah. Um, what if we did like an alternate history of Anglo-American philosophy where the British uh, idealists didn't lose out. And so like the Frege, Russell, 
Wittgenstein line never happened, or at least it was totally minor and didn't dominate Anglo-American philosophy? Like, what would it look like today if the if the British Hegelians and idealists in general had kind of won up the day? Because, like, <laughs> clearly in 1940, they still had some institutional power. With Lohenberg, I'm guessing you're saying it was the chair at Berkeley, and you have, like, we talked about um, Taggart before. Mc- he was Taggart, a British yeah. idealist. Um, amongst many others. So it is kind of interesting to think about it wasn't always guaranteed that the certain strain of Anglo-American philosophy, which ended up winning out the Frege, Russell, Wittgenstein line, didn't necessarily have to, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't determined beforehand. Are there, are do people take, you know, these figures like British idealists seriously in American yeah. Anglo circle? No. From what I gather, no. Um, wow. I mean, I, I've, I mean, Taggart obviously has a huge place in like philosophy of time, right? But but that has really nothing, nothing much to do with his, of idealism that that stuff is just kind of ignored uh alexander's kind of like i think i heard about him a year ago randomly as just like a historical kind of peculiarity or curiosity huh. so yeah their their work isn't really taken uh, very seriously although i shouldn't say that i, I know that 100 for sure and so there's some corners out there that that do take it seriously but certainly not in like your anthology texts of like the important papers of yeah. 20th century anglo-american philosophy interesting yeah. Yeah. I'd never heard of the Samuel Alexander or Lohenberg um, and really even McTaggart, except for, I mean, you know, a little bit just because of the essay on philosophy of time. But you know, I, I've never heard really of any of them, you know, going through all kinds of graduate school research, you know. So um, it is kind of it is curious that one would spend so many years studying philosophy and never even come across some of these names that I mean, this guy was the chair at Berkeley. Like, that's crazy. You would think that I would know about someone that was a chair at Berkeley or other people that he just quotes with familiarity that I'm like, who? I had to Google S. Alexander. I'm like, who is S. Alexander? There could be many S. Alexanders, but yeah. Um, well, cool. Did you want to keep uh, kind of going on your point there? No, no, no. That, that was just a, a thing I had thought about uh, when we oh, cool. missed that. That was funny and interesting. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about this idea of the empirical. Uh, Lohenberg says there's three, what does he call it, like domains or senses? Maybe well, so at the, at the end, yeah, at the end, he, he describes it two ways. And, and I think it's okay to read this. Um, he says that I have merely attempted to clarify the meaning of the adjective empirical, showing that its use is not unequivocal. It has at least three uses, a biographical use, a procedural use, and an ontological use. And then he goes on again and he says, but in each case, the term has a significant correlative, significant correlative as indicated by the appropriate synonyms. These are accordingly three distinct types of empiricism, namely temperamental, methodological, and metaphysical. And so the temperamental has to do with personality. Methodological is pretty simple. Methodological, your approach, your orientation and then the metaphysical refers to the subject matter and he says that the empirical pertains to all three of those and that they are three different uses of the adjective empirical right so the first one there is the biographical or temperamental one yeah and i thought this was really interesting because as soon as he said that i thought william james is coming up in this right yeah yeah Um, and of course he did yeah so the idea here is the empirical temperament um, is the tough-minded, stubbornly requiring facts before assenting mm-hmm. to any belief, right? It's kind of constitutional approach to knowledge is to avoid error. He doesn't explicitly say that, but that's what William James calls it in um, The Will to Believe. 
Dude, we should do an episode on William James' Will to Believe. It's like one of the great philosophy papers in history, um, especially okay. concerning how, how well-written it is. But um, cool. yeah, so anyway, uh, that's the empirical temperament. And it's uh, correlative is the non-empirical minded. He, I don't think he ever uses rationally minded, just non-empirical minded here. Um, as the tender-minded, and I'm thinking more like the open mm. to truth, the William James would have described it. The, the person who um, doesn't necessarily require um, absolute certainty or close to absolute certainty before assenting to something, um, which is an interesting way to think of the rationalist, <laughs> right? Which is why mm. I think he didn't use rationalist, but instead non-empirical. Um, maybe there would have been some, because you don't think of rationalists as being people who are necessarily like open to truth with like the uh, Myers-Briggs open to experience analog uh, coming out there, even if it's not intended, right? Yeah, I don't think of rationality and intuitiveness as being synonymous, but he seems to kind of say that they are both non-empirical, right? So like you don't think of the tender-minded person, which I think of more as being maybe like an intuitive person, as also being the rational person. But nevertheless, they kind of are both... Like there's an ambiguity here because he does say that he says James defined empirical temperaments as tough-minded and non-empirical ones as tender-minded, and then the very next sentence he says, in coining these picture, in coining these picturesque epithets as synonyms for the adjectives empirical and rational. So he does map the tender-mindedness onto rational. Okay, I must have missed that. Yeah, and he yeah, says that that James explicitly intended to draw a sharp line between men of marked idiosyncrasy. Here, so. Yeah, so you don't think of like Kant and Hegel as being tender-minded, <laughs> no, um, right? Right. <laughs> but I think there's there's some sense in which that makes some sense, as much as it probably doesn't describe their personal temperament very well. Um, the philosophical temperament is honestly um, open in some sense, right? I mean, Kant mm. talks about uh, making room for faith in his philosophy, right? In the sense of sort of being open to other kinds of knowledge than the strictly empirical, right? So there's some sense in which there's some openness there um, in terms of like epistemic openness, right? Which mm. maybe doesn't necessarily map onto someone's personal temperament. I think I'm definitely more of the tender-minded because I'm thinking right now of like Schleiermacher. I'm thinking of Bergson. I'm thinking of the philosophers that have been important to me throughout my life. And there are very few of them that I would call tough-minded, like empirical temperamental types. And that when I hear somebody like Neil deGrasse Tyson or like uh, – I was going to say Sean Carroll, but he tends to be a little bit more open. But, you know, like the kind of like scientific public speakers. Like what's mm -hmm. that guy's yeah. name? L Lawrence Krauss? Is that his name? Um, yeah. Like when I watch them, I'm like, man, you guys are mean. Like they, they seem tough-minded. <laughs> You know, and and there's a place for that, obviously, for that tough mindedness. And maybe I can toughen up a little bit, but I definitely feel much more that I am on that tender mindedness side. And maybe that's why I'm drawn to the the Hegel, the Kant, the Deleuze, the Bergson, the Sartre, you know, like the continental tradition, which maybe to overgeneralize here, maybe tends to be a little bit more of that like tender minded psychological disposition. Yeah, I think James describes it very well by saying that some people are more uh, concerned with avoiding error and some people are more concerned with being open to truth, even if sometimes you fail at it. And I think that's very much true. And you can, it doesn't exhaust a person's philosophical outlook. I don't want to go down that road. Um, but it certainly tells you a lot about it. 
Okay, tell me if I'm pressing this too far. Do you think that this distinction maps similarly onto the distinction between, like, justice and care ethics? That, like, the tough-minded type might lead to those who are drawn towards concerns about justice, whereas the tender-minded type would be drawn more towards a care ethic? I, mean, I, I see what you're saying, and I think there's something, there's something there, but I don't, I'm not sure that it maps on exactly parallel, just because some of the greatest champions of like the justice ethic are individuals who would be in the tender-minded um, sphere as well. Okay, um, yeah, true. But no, I do see what you're saying in terms of the temperament with which you approach ethics. Yeah. Right? Is it more relational and open? Uh, open to failure, open to contradiction, to exception. Um, in that sense, yeah, I, there's definitely like a, a kind of tender-mindedness in the sense that uh, James would describe it. Okay. And just for people listening, if you don't know, that's a callback from last week's episode, episode 104, where we talked about care ethics. So um, I, I did want to give a quick funny anecdote. So I think I may have told you this before, but Bertrand Russell, one of his criticisms of Bergson, and it's kind of like a passing remark that he makes, but he basically mocks Bergson, and he says, well, if you want to see, because Bergson focuses a lot on intuition, and even though Bergson doesn't really love the term intuition, I think he actually derives it from from his students' suggestions, but anyways, he talks a lot about intuition, and Bergson basically makes some pass, I'm sorry, uh, Russell makes some passing remark criticizing Bergson by saying, well, like, you can tell that his philosophy isn't serious because look at all the women that go see him, <laughs> go see him talk. <laughs> It's something along those lines. And so it's kind of like you've got the tough-minded Russell and then supposedly the tender-minded that's the effeminate Bergson. I just thought that was kind of funny. No, and I think the important point here isn't to like celebrate the tender-minded over the asshole, tough-minded uh, folk. But in Lohenberg's point is too, I think, the important um, like dynamism between them, right? So yes. there, is, yeah. there, just, there is some antagonism, but I don't think it's... If it's, if it's done in a mean way, like Russell was doing it, that's one thing, right? <laughs> but I don't think there's necessarily anything bad with sort of the antagonism between those two things. It's an important part of the dialectic of, you know, understanding and knowledge. So mm. when, you know, when Quine says that he has a preference for desert landscapes, right? And that's mm. why his ontology is so thin. Um, I see that and I'm like, that fucking sucks, man. <laughs> <laughs> like that doesn't, I don't, I don't feel that at all, right? Um, mm. But it's important, right? Because it, it challenges the, the other side and actually makes it and kind of um, kind of motivates it to uh, move forward. Yeah, I actually thought about you a lot reading this section, especially rereading, rereading it this time, because you do talk about that quite often. At least we have on this podcast, you know, that there are just people that are kind of inclined; they're predisposed in particular ways, and maybe some people are just. And, and I don't think it's either or. I don't think anybody is ever singularly tough-minded or singularly uh, tender-minded. But I think that, you know, you can obviously waver between the two, even throughout the day and throughout your life. But I think that there is a sense in which we can say that people are um, maybe tendentially oriented towards one side of the spectrum, habitually speaking. Yeah? And um, it made me think about you because I know that uh, that's something that's kind of fascinated you quite a bit, which I... I was a little bit resistant to, I'd say, a couple years ago, but something that I'm becoming much more interested in exploring, like how is it that those predispositions are formulated, like nature-nurture kind of debate stuff, but also just um, structurally speaking, and then what are the effects then um, 
of someone that is predisposed in a particular way? Like how does that person orient him or herself in the world? And then what effects does that lead to? Yeah, I think so too. And I think it's productive because it helps you with self-understanding, right? Trying to figure out where your own inclinations are in certain Hmm. areas, which can help you understand why you tend to have the intuitions you have. And then um, maybe even that can be a good thing in terms of like, oh, my intuition's correct, or even can help you be self-critical if necessary. Mm. It doesn't have to be like this kind of um, like weak kind of faux Nietzschean genealogical critique where it's like, well, you just believe this because of your mm. um, your own like personality disorders. So that that explains everything, right? No, it doesn't have to be that way, right? It can, it can be a way of self-understanding and of understanding where the people are coming from also. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's the temperamental, right? He says that's one way that the adjective empirical um, should be used is that we understand that there are different temperaments, that there are kind of empirically oriented types, and then there are non-empirically oriented types, he says. So that's one way that we can establish the correlative that relates to the adjective empirical. But the second one is the one that he spends, I'd say, like 60% of the essay on, right? With like yeah, yeah. 20% on either side with the other two. And that has to do with the procedural or the methodological. So what's going on here? So he says here that the, the empirical procedure um, admits of uh, certain ambiguities that he points out, um, such as, is this purely about experience? Is empirical coextensive with just experience? Is it just about sensation as sort of a species of experience? Um, and so he gets into that debate a little bit, and he brings up the uh, Bergs- Bergson's line that analysis is the negation of intuition, which I kind of wanted to ask you about because I'm wondering, is, is Bergson there saying that analysis in terms of um, like this tough-minded approach, right, is the negation of intuition in the sense of like Kantian intuition? Or is it intuition in Bergson's technical sense? It's in Bergson's technical sense, which I don't fully understand, to be honest, and which is a very kind of vague term. And it's actually one of these things I'm going to be revisiting soon because I'm doing a lot of work on Bergson. And even though that particular element isn't central to what I'm working on because I'm working more on his his issue of time, it does actually fit within his conception of duration. Um, but it, it does have to do with... Um, with how it is that he is kind of eschewing a, a purely analytical approach because he does think that there is a, a quote-unquote truer – well, this isn't quote. This is uh, – I'm my quotes um, – that there is like a truer uh, orientation to the world that is intuitive, a type of intellectual intuition. But it's not purely a Kantian thing. It has to – it's almost mystical, right? It's, it's kind of more of a Schleiermachian type of intuitive orientation. So whatever it is in the Bergsonian sense, uh, the word intuition has many different senses in philosophy and outside of philosophy, right? Yeah, because for it Kant, like, it's more about like sense data, right? Yeah, well, yeah, not sense data, but like, yeah, sense intuition or, or sense Sense intuition, right. Um, as opposed to like conception. Um, so yeah, whatever it is, what the word intuition seems to, or the like base level etymology that all those senses share is this idea of immediacy, which is the one that Lohenberg kind of centers on as being the important part of the empirical procedure, right? Yeah. Is concerned with immediate experience. However that experience comes, if it's just about sensory experience or if that includes other kinds of experience, um, whatever, as long as it's immediate experience, um, then that's the the main idea of the empirical procedure. Mm. Um, I really like this. I really like this. I 
I think that the empirical method does presume, sometimes it doesn't just assume it, sometimes it states it outright, but at the very least it presumes some type of um, immediate form of experience and it gives absolute priority to that, right? And I think, I think for me that's a very nice way of kind of understanding some of the underlying, what I would say are metaphysical presuppositions of the methodological empirical approach. So I, I kind of, I really buy this section of the argument. I find it very convincing and, and very accessible for kind of understanding some of what I would say then are the limitations of a, a real, like a, a pure brute methodological empiricism because it simply presumes pure immediacy or the ability to attain some type of immediate experience. Yeah, I'm also skeptical about that as well. But what I thought was super interesting, and I don't know if this is true or not, because I'm not super versed on um, the context with, in which Lohenberg's writing and how people would have taken this article at the time. But it seems to me like um, him talking about immediate experience here and really kind of centering on like maybe perception as being a form of immediate experience, that that almost makes the dominant empiricists of his day not empiricists. Because like the logical positivists and others who hold to like sort of like a sense data theorem, a big problem I think for them is this idea of how sense data relates to the world, right? As if because there's like a like a veil or a gap of perception that exists that has to be explained, right? Mm. Or like the the you know we have these splotches of sense data in front of our minds, right? And how do those splotches become like objects and things, right? Mm. Um, and so they're almost like afraid of immediate experience it can't be everything has to be mediated and you even if you end up with like this infinite regress of uh sense data of the sense data of the sense data or whatever right that becomes mm. a common problem for this theory so i, I wonder uh, i don't know if this is true or not but i wonder if lohenberg's ultimately like saying you bros are so bad you positivists are so bad you're not even empiricists <laughs> mm. like empiricism is your thing right it's called logical empiricism but you're not even empiricists hmm yeah, I mean he does he does take a couple shots at him. So I wonder. I'd be curious. Yeah. I mean one of the things I thought was interesting is he talks about how with the empirical approach that there's at least um a basis or an occasion of um what does he say? What's the exact quote? Okay, so here's the quote. He says, those who substitute for the word empirical other synonyms, such as the words instrumental, operational, experimental, inductive, accentuate indeed active or mediate modes of experience. But these active or mediate modes presuppose an immediate form as their basis or occasion. Now, I thought this was really interesting because this is what triggers my Deleuze alarms. So he's saying is, so some people, they substitute the word empirical and they talk about like experimental or inductive, like that inductive approach. And in so doing, they kind of do accentuate an active or immediate type of mode of experience. But that even in these active or immediate modes of experience is that there's a presupposition of the potential, the undergirding metaphysical ground of immediate access and that that's the basis or occasion. So to me, it almost sounds like he's saying that there's a sort of transcendental presupposition that's going on here, a type of rational, transcendental, metaphysical presupposition that is presumed by this immediate basis or occasion that even if empiricism is being 
substituted for an inductive approach, um, that it still assumes that there is that immediate potential that can be accessed, that you can maybe reach the thing in itself or something along those lines. No? Do you mean like by the very act of doing any immediate um, approach to knowledge, you have to assume, presuppositionally assume, some form of immediate contact for that to even get off the ground in the first place? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Or I think he's he's saying that at least that the that the empirical methodology sees it that way, right? Or yeah, 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 yeah exactly. I mean, but even the rationalist methodology was going to be okay with some sort of immediacy. It just wouldn't be necessarily an experience, right? It'd be some form of like rational intuition, maybe. Yeah, yeah, like in intellectist versus ratio in the old Latin division. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the empirical procedure then is more about the immediacy, which is a necessary presupposition of any immediacy, is going to be through experience, right? Primarily. Yeah, yeah. yeah which, does, which isn't exhaustive, right? You can sort of hold to that and say there is some form of immediate experience, but also hold that there's other forms of immediacy as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it seems like Lowenberg would probably be more open to the idea of um, the pluralism there. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. What else in this section? Anything else get your attention here? Um, not specifically. I enjoyed the jabs on the logical positivists. Those were super fun. Is this the part where he calls them methodologers? Is that in the third section? No, yeah, you're right. I think this is it. Where is it? It's page 287. So, we, yeah. we should just read this. So he says, The question of the supremacy of method is one with which philosophers alone are perennially concerned. And when philosophers become the protagonists of a certain method, their methodology is apt to turn into methodolatry. If they worship a single method, be it the intuitive or the analytical, the transcendental or the synoptic, the phenomenological or the mathematical, the pragmatic or the dialectical, they endow it with priority, and they tend to either impugn the validity of any other method or to make it subservient to the one of which they are the votaries. So yeah, there's the clear uh, sort of... Uh, pluralism there, right? He wants the methods to be plural, right? To kind of help each other in this interesting tension. Yeah, because like a couple sentences later, he says they've elaborated a monolithic theory of meaning. So yeah, exactly. He, it, it, is, it is a pluralism or maybe we would just say a dialectical. No? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it seems like the, the British idealists like Lohenberg weren't quite as interested in like a pure Hegelian dialectic, they probably saw dialectic as being a little bit different in form. Okay. But yeah, the idea of tension um, and of introducing opposites in a productive antagonism is absolutely still there, I think. Mm. So when he says that the positivists are ontophobic, he says, the notorious ontophobia of, posit of positivists, their fear of metaphysics, is the inevitable consequence of their methodolatry, the worship of the empirical method. So so he basically says it like this. Because of their methodolatry, because of their monolithic approach, they worship the empirical method, and therefore, because of that, they have an ontophobia, a fear of metaphysics. Do you think there's a, that's an interesting causal connection, right? It's almost like he's saying, and I really like this, but he's saying it's because of their methodological ignorance that they end up, or may, maybe let's say because of their methodological restrictiveness and arrogance they become a they become sort of like fearful of metaphysics so it's methodology first and then metaphysics 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that that's, seems to me entirely true. Just the idea that is it, yeah. You know, the the motivating concern for the positivists seem to have been this assumption that something like the scientific method and the empirically verifiable is the only thing that you can possibly count as knowledge. Everything else is just removed beforehand, right? Prior to investigation. Um, so it really restricts the possible outcomes you can have, right? Mm. And then, of course, the next sentence is one of my favorites. Yet the worship of the empirical method has a metaphysical basis. And I think that's something that we have talked a lot about. I'd say especially over the latter like 30 or so episodes that has something that we've talked about quite quite frequently, that there are these metaphysical presuppositions that we can't ignore. And that's one of the things that Lohenberg is saying here, is that they worship the empirical, but even that has a metaphysical basis. And despite, what's the metaphysical basis, you think? Despite the protests to the contrary. So, yeah. oh, the, meta, the metaphysical base. The, the metaphysical basis here is the the assumption of immediacy, right? Wouldn't that be an epistemic basis? Well, because, uh, well, we, would it? Well, maybe this is a good time to go to that third section. The third one, the subject matter, because that's what he calls metaphysical later on. Yeah. Yeah, I basically just thought this as being what what an empiricist metaphysics look like. Uh, so he says the subject matter of the empirical uh, or the empirical subject matter is the particular, the changing, and the contingent. And the non-empirical or rationalist subject matter is the universal, the immutable, and the necessary. This mm. is basically just metaphysical ontology, right? And um, I think that what's interesting here is, you know, metaphysics is not my area at all. But it does seem like a lot of the, there's basically two camps in kind of modern metaphysics, right? The kind which sees the particular and the changing and the contingent as being all that exists, right? Like nominalism, basically. The whole history of nominalism is basically that, right? And then like substance and substratum theory people who are like, no, there's some universal immutable necessary things going back to like platonic universals and stuff. And it's like these two sides of this war that just constantly in battle forever. And it seems to me, at least as a novice in that area, kind of like this is more, it says more about you than it says about the things, right? Because the empirical um, subject matter of the particular, the change in the contingent creates all these problems for explaining how things exist the way we think that they do. Um, but mm. then the nominalist basically just says, yeah, but that's how it is because this is all we can verify or whatever, <laughs> right? Um, so it does seem like the, the metaphysical backdrop follows to me from this epistemic like uh, restriction. There's a restriction on what you can know um, and what you can be aware of and, and whatnot. You can involve things like intuition and stuff like that. So mm. we're going to end up with this really kind of strictured desert landscape of an ontology. Um, I, it's interesting to me that Lohenberg's almost saying like the metaphysics is restricting the epistemology rather than mm. the reverse. So I wasn't sure what his argument was for, for that or if I'm even interpreting him correctly. Can you say a little bit more about that? Like, why, one, why are you surprised that it goes in that direction? But two, like, in what way do the metaphysics restrain the uh, epistemology here? Well, it seems like he's saying that the metaphysics is behind the ep epistemic restrictions. Of the you mean like a, like a repressed metaphysics, like a dogmatic, un unacknowledged metaphysics? Exactly, yeah. Um, okay. And it just seems to me like, at least in some sense, it's the opposite, where there's like an epistemic restriction and then that leads to this really restricted um, 
you know, kind of deserted uh, metaphysics. But I guess maybe if you go back to the temperament idea, the the notion is they wanted the desert metaphysics the whole time, right? Because mm. that's following their temperament. So they're going to put this epistemic restriction on it to get that result. Is that maybe what the argument is? Maybe because, but but then at the end he kind of says, but it's not necessarily the case that every person who is temperamentally tough-minded is always in favor of um, the procedural methodological empirical approach and then that somehow they advocate for the metaphysics of particularity change and contingency, right? He says they, they kind of mix and match sometimes. Yeah, so maybe like David Lewis would be kind of like the arch empiricist or one of the arch empiricists from this definition. But then he also thinks that there's like almost infinitely many possible worlds which concretely exist and we can never have access to. So that seems kind of like an issue. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I, I think the third one is pretty self-explanatory, right? So it's like he kind of starts with the first one being temperamental as sort of like psychological point predispositional orientation that you have in the world or to the world. The second one, the second use of the adjective empirical is much more of where the meat of the essay comes in. And I think much more what we tend to think of when we think of the empirical as a myth- yeah. uh, as a methodological approach. And then the third one is interesting. He's saying that there's kind of an empirical metaphysics and that the empirical metaphysics maps onto the notions of particularity change and contingency and then that means that the non-empirical maps on to universality to immutability and to necessity um which is kind of an interesting way to use empirical i don't usually think of the first and the third categories as being ways that we would apply the adjective empirical we tend to think primarily that empiricism is just a methodological approach but i really like that he kind of bookends it if you will by these the metaphysical and then the biographical because I think that creates this really nice tripartite, let's say Trinitarian, uh, Trinitarian or tripartite <laughs> um, sort of not not system, but but um, let's just say framework for for thinking about empiricism beyond what we tend to think about. You know? Yeah, I think that's correct, and and maybe I'm harping a bit on the idea of which way the causation runs, and that's just unimportant. The idea is that these three kind of go together, not exhaustively, um, but there's important like relations between them that should be brought out. Right? They're not just isolated islands in different areas of philosophy or something. Mm. Yeah. yeah the, the epistemology and the metaphysics and the personal temperament or the, temp- the philosophical temperament of the person do importantly go together. Right? Like your epistemology really does kind of flow from uh, a certain kind of philosophical temperament right and that it's going to have effects on your metaphysics and you know back and forth in all directions it's really interesting in nine pages he is obviously running quite roughshod over some of these things but it's like he's got it's a blog post (laughs) it's he's got friggin psychology slash anthropology in point one he's got epistemology in point two and then he's got metaphysics in point three it's kind of but it's really nice because I think even though it is just a blog post, it kind of creates these little bite-sized points for further elaboration. Because like for me, this is an article that I've read a couple times now, but I'm finding it to be quite inspiring and in a very loose sense. It's making me want to see how I can take some of these things he discusses and apply them further, right? Kind of 
to help me beef out some of the intuitions that I've already had about other philosophical figures or other philosophical concepts or concerns and see if I can use that that tripartite book-ended approach to kind of flesh out some of my own thoughts. Yes, the key, right, is you can take this um, even as like a, a temperamental motivator, right, to go and um, approach different areas of philosophy and see how it maps onto this tripartite little grid here. Um, not to sort of dismiss it or use it to celebrate whatever it's, uh, you're reading, but as just an interesting way to see it differently. And that's what's important about it, right? It's not just a, a thesis and an argument and some counterexamples that are then addressed and dismissed, right? It's, it's interesting and different structurally in that way. And um, mm. fun to read for that reason, right? Because it's a little bit different than the normal philosophical article. But then um, you can do more with it and it can stick with you longer than just a series of arguments and counterexamples. Hmm. Now, I don't think this is an insignificant question, but it's it might be a little bit trite. But um, the article itself, Lowenberg's approach in crafting this article, is there a temperament and like a methodological approach that you would categorize this as? Like, is this more of um, a tender-minded approach? Is this more of um, a rational or intuitive paper? I mean. It, clearly doesn't seem to be it's not data-driven analysis or whatever so it kind of is almost an enactment of the non-empirical approach in some ways i mean it's, it's qualitative if there ever was qualitative analysis <laughs> right <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah i think that's the interesting question is uh can the empiricist given their temperament and procedure ever admit of that dialectical tension between empiricism and rationalism, or can the rationalism, or can the rationalist be the only one who can admit of that productive distinction? So he didn't say it explicitly, but it kind of seems implied that really only the non-empirical, the rationalist, can admit of that productive distinction, and the empiricist, by very nature of their restrictive epistemology, isn't going to allow for that distinction to be productive in the first place. It's going to be a distinction between like the right and the wrong, right? You know what, dude? I have noticed this a lot, especially being in social science circles in the past year and a half, that I am able to read quantitative data and I am able to sit there in seminars and at workshops and and, and work with people in um, so social science approaches that are much more quantitative and I'm able to kind of get what's going on and I can pick it up. I may not have... Um, all of the tools in the toolbox, but the toolbox doesn't seem foreign to me. Whereas when I say the word metaphysics, you should see the look <laughs> on social scientists' faces. They like they think one either that I'm spouting bullshit. I literally had an academic like put his head back and roll his eyes one time when I was talking about the philosophy of time. Um, and then I've had other people just look at me with blank stares. I've had people like respond in ways where I'm like, "What are you even talking about?" I'm like, that has nothing to do with what I'm saying. So there really is a, a difficulty, I think, of people who are extremely empirically minded or educated to cross over into, let's say, the non-empirical, whereas the other direction, it isn't as difficult for whatever reason. And there's a quote by Cl uh, Lee Claire Labarge is her name. She says that um, the humanities read social science, but social science does not read the humanities. And there's something really true about that, that generalized statement. Yeah, yeah, there are certainly examples of people in the humanities who spout off bullshit that social scientists would be right to point out as yes. bullshit, right? But 
by and large, people in humanities have great respect for the social sciences and use it um, in appropriate ways, right? Whereas the the general relationship going the other way is one of complete dismissal Contest. and ignorance, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not social science, but did you see the, the um, God, I don't even know what it's called, but it went viral and it was like the 33-year-old German physicist that's dating the 35-year-old Hegelian no, you gotta save that because it's my sticky leaves, yo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, then fuck it, it's time for a segue because that maps on really well to this in, in what we're talking about. <laughs> All right, cool. So we'll go ahead and jump into our sticky leaves now. And since we already have the surprise ruined, we know what Troy is going to be recommending. But just for people listening who aren't familiar, this is the segment of the uh, episode where one of us gets to recommend something that is bringing us joy and meaning in a world that is potentially void of such things. Well, not void of joy, but void of meaning. So how do we find joy in a meaningless world, Troy? Potentially meaningless, but yes. Um, Yeah, yeah, so you you just mentioned it. There was this, um, now it seems like almost infinite or uh, infamous, excuse me, uh, Reddit post on the relationships subreddit um, this last week or over a week ago titled, My Husband's Career in Academic Philosophy is Ruining Our Marriage, which is a wonderful, <laughs> uh, <laughs> concise description of what this is described as. And the the poster's name is Hegelian Wife, which is lovely. And she basically says that uh, she's been together with her husband for six years He's an academic philosopher who studies seem like seems like solely Hegel, and she's a physicist. And she had never really ever um, delved into his philosophical work; never really had been interested. And then, once he pointed out that she had never been interested, she decided to read his dissertation or something, and and actually talked to him about it and found it to be completely incomprehensible and ridiculous, and have all this kind of outdated nineteenth-century physics, like billiard balls physics and stuff. Um, and she found the whole thing ridiculous and it, felt, it came, became like a huge problem in their relationship. And there's this one quote that I, that I love that I just want to read from it. She says, I've gently tried to help him and explain how he might start to engage seriously with contemporary physics. He has never read a book on the subject and is by his own admission bad at math. But he just gets angry with me and explains that Hegel's system is presuppositional and the basis for all possible rational thought so there is no need at all to read other texts in the first place. Parenthetical, <laughs> I have no idea what this means. <laughs> that is such a great um, parody of the Hegelian philosopher of the 21st century that this confirms for me that this is a hoax as written by a, a philosopher because it's too perfect of a yeah. parody. To not be written by a philosopher. <laughs> and the, the parenthetical at the end, I have no idea what this means, referring to the idea of the presupposition of all rational thought, is so perfect. <laughs> I was dying reading that the first time. The whole post is wonderful. Um, just search for it on the internet. It's short. It's like six or seven paragraphs. And it's so funny. Um, I think my favorite part about it is that the responses to it have been so great. Uh, from some people just saying it's a hoax and it's funny and to other people like taking it very seriously and being like a blight uh, or an indictment on like continental academic continental philosophy of the 21st century uh, and it's total isolation from science uh, in the way we've been talking about. Um, there's been this, there was a, this great article in the outline, um, which is an online magazine 
by a guy named Tom Wyman called So You Married a Hegelian, a defense of Reddit's much loathed philosophy guy written by a uh-huh. very nice and normal philosophy guy. Uh, and it's lovely. Um, I would definitely encourage him to go out there and read the outline. It's kind of like a sort of tongue-in-cheek defense of the philosophy guy using the antagonism between he and his wife as a productive tension towards like synthesis in their marriage. It's, I can't even tell if it's entirely serious, but it's, it's really funny. And uh, I think even like intellectually interesting in a, in a funny way. Mm. Um, So yeah, I think this made my week. It was so funny and it, it actually made Hegel trend on Twitter, which was great. I think that Hegel was trending the same time that Judith Butler was. (laughs) <laughs> and so like philosophy people were freaking out thinking like they were finally achieving their apotheosis of the discipline. Oh, that's so good. It's funny. Cause yeah, I mean, it probably is a hoax, but when I read it, I had a moment where I was about to text my friend and say, is this you and your wife? <laughs> <laughs> because he's, a, he's a 35 year old Hegelian who is married to a German speaker. Cause she says that like, you know, that like he quotes, things in german and like the word is wrong that's not actually what it means in the german and all this other shit and i wanted to message him and be like is this you but his his wife isn't a physicist but she is an academic but uh so i was like okay so for a moment i was like this could actually be somebody that i know you know (laughs) i think everybody had that first instinct of oh my god is this somebody that i know Yeah, and he totally he did his PhD on Hegel, and he totally is like a hardcore Hegelian. So I was like, "That's funny." Uh, yeah, no, I loved it. I thought it was freaking fantastic, man. I uh, yeah, I'm sure anybody who knows us uh, will have something to relate to in terms of how this philosophy guy acts. Yes, yeah, pretty much. I know. I do feel sorry for all of my partners um, when I <laughs> start talking about Deleuze and shit. So. At least when I talk about Sartre, they get it, you know? Like, they can, existence precedes essence, take responsibility for your choices, and even for the things that you don't choose, you know? Like, that kind of stuff, they're kind of down with. All that tender-minded bullshit, yeah? Yeah, all that tender-minded stuff, you know? Like, (laughs) the the idea of bad faith, and they like the anecdotes about, like, the the couple that are on the date, or, like, the waiter that's playing the role of being the waiter, living in bad faith. Like, they get that stuff. But then when I start talking about, like, deterritorialization and rhizomes, and yeah... (laughs) Then it's like, what the fuck, man? What about the bird ha- or the the bee having sex with the flower? That's something that's totally tender-minded, right? Yeah, man, it's connection. It's assemblages, right? Machinic assemblages. <laughs> hey, there's there's got to be a better way to talk about philosophy with people who are non-philosophers, even if they're academics, like smart humans. That you like sometimes philosophy jargon is just it is like trying to it's like like an English speaker hearing Mandarin for the first time. Yeah. And, and the, I, for, the best, I forget the that. Best communi- Sorry. Yeah. No, I said, I forget that. Yeah. I mean, the best philosophical communicators are the ones who can, it's not, it's not dumbing down at all. It's really concisely summing up how the philosophical content that they're describing and communicating is actual thought in the normal sense, right? It's all thought. Right? All thoughts are thoughts, whether they're of mm. the most basic kind or of their most complex philosophical kind. And being able to concisely package some philosophical content in a way that um, is open to everybody without losing any of the meaning of the content right, or the complexity of it, that's certainly possible. I mean, if it's not, then it's just nonsense that's being spoken, right? But it's mm. really, really difficult to do that sometimes. 
Yes, it's extremely difficult to do that sometimes. Um, but yeah, I know. I thought that was a freaking hilarious meme too. I'm glad that was your sticky leaves. I, it's one of those things that I saw and I got a good chuckle out of, but I forgot. So I'm glad you brought it back up because it really did bring me some joy. And a little bit of worry. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of concern. Also, everybody gets concerned for a second reading that. Yeah, I also some self reflection on myself. I'm like, is this how people have viewed me? I'm yeah, have sure. I been seen? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I did feel a little seen. So, all right, man, let's go ahead and wrap things up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sweet. So, yeah, for everybody out there, if you want to check out that article, I'm pretty sure that you can find it uh, open access. Um, do some googling if you can't find it open access send us a message and um i will try to get you a copy of the pdf but it's j lowenberg l-o-e-w-e-n-b-e-r-g and it's what is empirical easy to find um also if you can support us please do go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn that's patreon.com slash owls at dawn access the bonus content and the democracy motherfuckers tier and again the democracy motherfuckers episode on the philosophy of psychoanalysis is coming up very very soon Fingers crossed for next week. We'll have a badass guest if it does work out. Sweet. Um, I think that's pretty much all we got to do, unless there's anything else you want to say. Uh, just one more thing, dude. What's that? Das Danny Amerikanski. All you tender-minded motherfuckers. Yeah.